setup in psychiatry residency is a group therapy for the residents. When your peers aren't happy, you go into the group therapy session together. There came that day when today's going to be a little different. Sam, we want to talk about you. I'm Dr. Samuel Sharmat, and I'm a complex case psychiatrist in New York. Nothing particularly significant or important. It wasn't uh, terribly dramatic. That boy needs therapy. That boy needs therapy. Lying down on the couch. That's crazy when we've got effective interventions at our disposal. What does that mean? Artifact sizes, empirical questions answered left and right. A lot of the psychedelics became illegal. A lot of the psychedelics became illegal. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Life is rubbish. For all of us. Welcome to the show. The Frontier Psychiatrist. Let's go. That boy needs therapy. That boy needs therapy. All that's going on here is that these people do not have a language for talking about their thoughts and their feelings. And as soon as they start talking about their thoughts and their feelings, they don't have to do crazy things. They don't have to do crazy things. This is Dr. Owen Muir, and you're listening to the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast. This audio was originally recorded many years ago, back when I was a child psychiatry fellow and I had received a grant from NYU for the Rudin Fellowship in Ethics and Humanities. Sam figured out the hardest cases and took care of them in a way that brought more curiosity to bear than than other people in our field. And the fact that you could just do something different Well, Sam's the one who made it obvious to me. When Sam was a child, he had a traumatic brain injury. And this changed his brain, but it also changed his ability to understand other people's minds. And this interview is from 2015. What is a complex case psychiatrist? My job is to spend extra time with the patient, to ask them the questions that no one else has asked them, and to also recruit other specialists, if needed, to uncover more secrets of what's hiding under the surface to figure out what's going on for someone. Mm -hmm. That is not the normal job description of most psychiatrists. For our listeners who aren't in the field, what do most psychiatrists do? Let me give you a quick example. Patient comes in, doctor says, how can I help you? patient says, I'm anxious. And the doctor says, okay, let's talk about your anxiety. And that focuses on the anxiety, and that's good. The complex case might have been saying that they have anxiety, but they haven't been getting better for a long time. When they sit down and are interviewed in an extensive way, it turns out that their anxiety is not normal anxiety. Their anxiety might be paranoia or OCD, but they've been using the wrong name as they've been going to doctors who just respond to what they've been asking for help with. They haven't gotten better before. Now, because they're getting this more comprehensive evaluation, the secrets get uncovered, and 
they can get better. It's at this point that Sam told me the story of how at four years old, he rolled really fast headfirst into a brick wall and ended up in a coma. This head injury sets the stage for everything that would happen in his life thereafter and becomes both a focal point and a pivot point for help for thousands of people. Before the age of four, I am, from what I am told, I was a happy-go-lucky kid. At the age of four, I was out with my parents in the park on the west side. When you get to Riverside Park, there's a big hill that takes you down. It almost doesn't matter where you go in. There's always going to be a hill that takes you down. I was on a little plastic motorcycle. I looked at my mom. I looked at my mom and I said, can I go? My mom said, I don't think so. That's not a good idea. My dad puffed out his chest a little bit and said, let him go. I went down that hill on this little toy motorcycle and straight into a wall and hit my head hard enough to give me a concussion that lasted four hours. And uh, I was brought to the emergency room and everything. There didn't seem to be any real problem after that. I was still happy-go-lucky. But from that point forward... I couldn't remember things like I used to. I couldn't remember. I, I do have a memory of being five years old and my mom asking me why I had to put all my toys out on my tables instead of putting them away. And I, I just remember saying, I, I want to see them. I need to see them. Uh, I know from my life after that point, that the real reason I did that is because if I put them away, I wouldn't remember where I put them. And that started a different life for me. What I'm describing there is at home, but trying to write a book report, I wouldn't remember most of what I read, and I would have to go back and reread and reread. So you uncover secrets for people. I do. Okay. And that takes longer Yes. Then obvious things. So what we're here to talk about tonight is basically how you got to where you are. That's not a, a that's not a normal job. In fact, you are the only person who has that job description who I know, and there may be others, but I haven't met them. It's a knack. Putting together things other people don't see. I see it almost like a big map on the wall and it makes sense to me. The next place I take our conversation is to fast forward to when Sam is training as a medical and subsequently psychiatric resident. It wasn't easy because his brain didn't do the memory things that other people's do effortlessly. But again, one thing about brains is they do a lot of editing of our experience for us. And Sam's brain edited out that Sam had a brain that edited things out. He couldn't remember that he couldn't remember. And that made things a little bit weird, as you'll hear. We were going around on rounds, and what we were using, this is before smartphones, we used index cards. And everyone had a pile of index cards in their pocket where each index card was a, a patient or represented a patient. 
with all the information on it. And we were rounding, and the attending says to the first intern, tell me about your patient, and don't look at your cards. And my colleague tells him all about the patient. So we visited a few patients, and he would ask each intern to talk about their patient without looking at their cards. And he got to me, and I got really nervous. I started to talk, and I realized the information I had in my head that I could accurately reproduce was spotty. I knew the last name of the patient, but not the first name. I knew the gender of the patient, but not the exact age. It might take me longer to get done to be able to hand off patients to the next shift. Staying late every night, tough on any relationships I had. People would all go to someone's house for dinner, and I'd be finishing up my charts at the hospital. 10 or 11 at night. That's late. Yeah. How many nights out of the week was that happening? Probably four. How many nights a week were you working? Five. (laughs) That's most of the nights. You're working harder. Your wheels are spinning more. One of the things about psychiatry training is that not only are we doctors and trained to learn about disease and blah, blah, but there's this constant process of feedback and evaluation and micro-examination of everything we do interpersonally with patients, with supervisors, with each other. It's built into the process that we are under the microscope. And if anything rubs anyone the wrong way, we have to hear about it. Did any of your behavior raise to the level where it it became noticed? Because I was unaware to what extent my memory played an issue, I was still looking for things outside of me to explain what was happening in my experience. Freud would call that a defense mechanism. What, What did you blame it on? I thought that residency was supposed to be really hard. I was blaming it on residency. I was blaming it on my caseload. I was blaming it on work that was left for me by the previous shift. I had already worked 80 hours that week, and I was exhausted. Because I was seeing the world through that lens, on on the one hand, I thought I wasn't doing anything wrong. I, I knew that I was doing everything right by my patients. I was staying till 10 or 11 o'clock at night to make sure that all the orders were correct and everything was right. I had no concept of what the experience was of my peers. What they were seeing. They were seeing someone who was defensive or aloof or trying to shift the blame. They basically saw what I was doing for what it was when I couldn't see it. Rarely did people work in jobs like you did where all of your coworkers are also psychiatrists, (laughs) professional observers of human behavior. That's true. Is there a mechanism by which they were able to bring this to your attention? Set up in psychiatry residency is a group therapy for the residents. When your peers aren't happy, you go into the group therapy session together 
and they can all go around the room and I was going to say make an example of you but that's not right because they're not trying to make an example of you to the other people in the room I think they're trying to rip you apart they're frustrated, they're angry and they want some justice there came that day when we went into the group therapy room they closed the door and I forgot who it was but one of them stood up and said today's going to be a little different Sam, we want to talk about you. And they did. And put me under a pretty bright light. We were in a small room. And the room could probably only hold 15 people, and there were 12 of us. Is this one of those old hospital conference rooms with the wood paneling? This was a basement conference room. Ah, the classic residency basic conference room. (laughs) Yeah. Low ceilings. Yeah. Narrow space, small windows. Okay. Musty. Yes. Old carpet. In my mind's eye, I feel like it was a really big room. And they were along the edges of it, and I was in the center of it. I was sitting at the table with all of them in reality. But the feeling of it, as you asked, was that there was a distance between me and them. Sounds like the Roman Senate. Yeah, I suppose it probably felt like that. Although, a little more insidious because they were all psychiatrists. And they weren't going to tell me that I was short on my copper for a merchant trade. They were going to tell me there was something they didn't like about me. What did they say? I don't remember. They didn't like the way I carried myself like nothing was wrong. They resented that. I think they wanted me to show my struggle because then they would have understood it better because I couldn't verbalize it. But I think they would have liked it if I had said, gosh, I'm having so much trouble remembering all this stuff or, wow, residency's really hard. Um, I tried to keep up appearances by being confident and that unsettled them. I walked out of there bewildered, like I had just been hit in the head again. <laughs> Fortunately, our program was one of the programs that has all of the residents do their own therapy. I walked out of there a bit bewildered and went to my weekly therapy session, and I sat down in that chair, still stunned when I went to recollect the story, I shone a a spotlight on myself to really fully take it in. I think it was in therapy that I thought I should get tested. What kind of testing did you have done? I went to a doctor, a doctor called a neuropsychologist. The hallway was a normal hallway. I get to a door with a name on it. It opens up. And there are windows on the left with sunlight streaming through. A little bit of dust in that sunlight. All around the office are white bookshelves filled with books. From the ceiling to the floor. 
and the ceiling was like 10 feet. There were a lot of books. There was a long desk covered with electronics equipment. It was almost like I had walked into like a ham radio shop or something. There was all this stuff that was foreign to me. She started asking me questions just about my past. She wanted to know a little bit about me. She wanted to know a lot about my brain. She wanted to know... She wanted to know about me psychiatrically. She wanted to know about my moods. She wanted to know about my sleep. And then she really wanted to know about every single time I might have hit my head. And... There were a number of times I hit my head. I think a lot of kids do. That might be a defensive answer. But there were a number of times. And in that list, I mentioned to her the story about when I was four. And I mentioned that story, and she raised her eyebrows. And I even asked her right then. I said, what about that? You had a concussion for four hours. And I said, yes. And she says, that's a significant head injury. I said, really? And she also said, that's a significant age to have a head injury. I asked her why. There are certain circuits that are forming at that time. And if you have a head injury at that time, those specific circuits might not form. She hadn't done any testing yet, but I was intrigued. And that wasn't the only head injury, right? You had had more. None of them had concussions. None of them had loss of consciousness. Well, the, just to refresh your memory, the report, which I have here, because you sent it to me, at age six, you, you're knocked out when you hit your head in a little window, hit the top of your head. 11 years old, you had a baseball hit you in the, over the left eyebrow. You had that big one, but there was more than one. There was, yeah, one more in college, too. Okay. Yeah. I forgot about the one that knocked me out when I was six. Because you had the one at four. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) There are bells going off and also disbelief. Because at that time, I'm thinking, it can't be that simple. Everyone has head injuries. She told me to sit in this other chair and she was going to put some wires on my head. And it was a lot of wires. It must have been 20 or 30. Sounds like a lot of wires. Hooked me up to all of this equipment that she had on her table. When you get a test like this done, the doctor wants your eyes open, your eyes closed, wants you talking, wants you not talking. Might have you counting. The test is going to show what the brain is doing while you're doing these different functions. They're really running you through the paces. Month goes by. You get the report in the mail. There's abstract silhouettes of people's heads, but then all this swirling color inside to show brain activity. And at first I thought what was going to be interesting about what she was going to show me was that it was so colorful and Just interesting to anybody. But then she really focused on certain results in that packet. Do do you remember getting them? Getting them? 
yeah. Do you remember getting the this these results? Is this a clear memory for you? Yeah, I remember she had me sit in the interview chair, not in the chair where you get wired up. Okay. And she was sitting in front of me with okay. this packet in her hands. And she had flipped it around so I could see it, and she was trying to show me these results. Mm-hmm. And she was pointing at some of the pictures that had swirling color in them. And in some of those pictures, there were areas where there was no color. She was pointing at these pictures and telling me that I didn't have brain activity in a certain area of my brain. Yeah. The, the report says prominent underactivation in the left frontal area at 3 hertz in Broadman Area 10. And other sciencey language <laughs> like that. A discriminant analysis for traumatic brain injury indicates that at the 70% level, the client has a probability of membership in the mild traumatic brain injury population in the moderate range of severity. That sounds something I could get a, a card for right? and be proud to carry. And that was what that test concluded. I felt so validated. Really relieved, actually, that... All of this struggle, which I hadn't identified before, but I had identified in therapy once I started talking about it, all of the struggle was there for a reason, that it wasn't a lack of effort or that I was lazy or stupid. There was a reason why it was hard for me. And fortunately, being a psychiatrist, I knew some tools that I could use once I had this information. And one of those tools is to lead with your weakness with other people to help set expectations. I started practicing how to communicate to other people that I had an issue and that I was eager to work beyond it, but that I might need to do things a different way. I was able to set expectations pretty easily with people by leading that way. And life got a lot easier. It's possible to have a brain injury that prevents you from understanding that you have that brain injury. We call this anisognosia. It's a word that means the inability to know one is sick. And it wasn't obvious to Sam because his brain edited out that obvious truth, which all of his co-residents could see. He was functional enough to be a physician but his brain got hit in just the way that kept him from seeing the way in which it was hit. It wasn't until psychotherapy helped him see both group and his own individual work that he needed to see a neuropsychologist. And that hard data from the neuropsychologist told a story that Sam, the scientist, could understand and believe. And that truth let him recraft his craft as a physician so that he could be more helpful than he ever was before. She put it in the context of a story. Uh, She said, remember when you told me, and she told me the story I told her about being four and going down the hill on the motorcycle, the toy motorcycle. A story, in fairness, you only remember because other people told it to you. Correct. No, wait a minute. 
actually, I do remember that story myself. And I don't think it's a false memory. Because I'm thinking maybe I remember because it was a traumatic event. Traumatic events have a way of really digging those memories into your brain. I remember it because I remember the feeling of losing control of the motorcycle. I remember at the, that at the bottom of this hill, the entrance to the playground I was trying to get to required a turn. And I tried to make the turn. And I didn't know anything about centrifugal forces or anything like that. I didn't know that it would take more effort to make a turn at speed. And I remember trying to make this turn and turning the handlebars on this little toy motorcycle as hard as I could. And the wall was just there. And that's the last thing I remember of this story. It ends right there with the wall right in front of me. She tells me about this vulnerable time for the brain. And she said, these results here, and not just the swirling area, it all makes perfect sense. And this is why you have trouble with your memory. I felt a sense of relief and validation at that moment. There was a sadness what if I had turned the motorcycle enough? What if I hadn't ridden the motorcycle down the hill? What if I had just taken the motorcycle straight? What if I had just fallen off of it? How different would my life have been? I can't go back and change that. And none of any of the people you can see either, right? Basically everyone who comes into a psychiatrist's office couldn't turn the handlebars enough. You go from getting this crushing news that you are a likely inductee into the society of the traumatically brain injured. That's right. Sam successfully graduated from both general psychiatry residency and addiction psychiatry fellowship. And he knew he had a different brain. He had another lucky accident, which was his first job. And that first job set him up to use that brain to develop a novel system of psychiatric diagnostic interview that he was forced to develop. I was asked to become the psychiatrist for a clinic in Harlem. And they hadn't had a psychiatrist yet. They had a few hundred patients. And they brought me in, and I asked them what they wanted me to do, and they said, we want you to do 110 evaluations. That's a lot of evaluations. It is. I said, how much time do I have to do these? They said, we need them now. We're just going to book you up, okay? And I said, okay. It was my job. I started doing evaluations, one after another. That's not a job, by the way. (laughs) I've never heard of that in my life. No one just does back-to-back evaluation after new evaluation. You're just meeting new people Mm -hmm. and then not seeing them again, essentially. In this setup, you're just seeing a new person. They wanted me to see them again also. They expected you to do both an unbelievable amount of 
meeting new people and then ongoing treatment for them. Yeah. I th- it's funny that you mention it because I never thought of it before that no one does that job. I think it's because no one has that many unevaluated patients. Generally, they trickle in. This was a clinic that had a backlog. And so they were just waiting for the psychiatrist to come in the door. Evaluations really require paying attention, looking at the person in front of you, studying them. And when you're doing it in an immersive way like this, you really notice the differences between them. And that becomes a new piece of data that we're not really taught to look for. You have a larger data set of comparators. I started to develop a system that would be a little more efficient. My instinct was to try to make this a more efficient process. I had found that with a lot of the patients up front or patients I had seen in the past, just asking them to help you out to get through the process is not very efficient and might get you racking your brain trying to figure out what's going on. I started to keep track of all the questions I asked that did get to good information. And I started to make a list of all these questions. And what I would do is someone would come in and I would just ask them all the questions. They'd say they had anxiety and I'd say, okay, yeah. And I'd ask them all these other questions and it would uncover stuff. When you ask the same questions of enough people, you see what the differences are. And the list got pretty long on the questions, but it really worked. I had developed a database of questions that I was going to use on everybody because it would really uncover all this great stuff. That was nine years ago. I never stopped adding to the list. The list is pretty extensive right now. So I think that's part of the process, part of the answer to your question of how I got from that test to where I am today. One of my favorite questions is, at what age did you first discover the feeling of sadness? I've never asked that question. It's a question that evolved from trying to get people to remember back to when sadness started for them. As doctors, we always want to ask, when did this begin? People have this amazing, I was about to say ability, but it's the opposite. This amazing resistance to going back in time in their mind. So for some questions, I would have to ask the other way. When was the first time in your life you ever felt a certain thing? And also make a big assumption, which is that most children are born happy. And I use the word most. I'm fully aware that there are cranky kids that are born and they stay cranky and maybe get out of it and maybe don't. But most kids are happy little kids. And then a transition takes place, especially if someone experiences depression at some point in their life. There's a transition zone on the timeline where they discover this feeling and it's new it is a discovery you spend your life having all your food given to you and your clothes and your baths and all of this and then 
something happens. Grandpa's gone, or your dog died, or your parents split up, or you got taken out of school, moved, or something happened. Or chemistry was changing in your brain, which can be the case also. And then this new emotion appears. And that was one of the questions I came up with to get to the heart of it, to really pin it down. I'm a psychiatrist. I've never heard someone ask that question. I've seen a ton of psychiatrists do their work. No one's ever asked anything like that in all of my experience. I spend a lot of time thinking about how to improve the process. So what else were you doing to manage? Because you have this impairment. You got to work around. What else were you doing to cope with that? I have an answer for that question. And the answer came later. I was talking with someone once about this quote-unquote knack and about how I would see things that other people wouldn't see or notice things or certain things would occur to me that were missing from a picture. And this person was, if I remember correctly, a neuropsychologist. She told me that very often when people have a head injury like I did, because they can't remember as much, they have to look for cues in their environment to fill in the gaps. And not just in terms of factual information, but in terms of how someone might be feeling or how you relate to other people, whether someone might be angry or... There's the old adage about people with blindness becoming more sensitive to sound or touch. Sam's brain was blind to a certain kind of incorporation of information into long-term memory. And so for him, he became exquisitely sensitive to everything else that could help him figure out what was going on. All those little details that other psychiatrists missed. If you don't fully remember all the events leading up to today, you might not be able to properly judge how someone should be feeling in the moment. So you really got to read them. Someone might just walk in with a certain air about them of anger or happiness or whatever it was. And because I wouldn't necessarily remember everything leading up, I'd have to read them and say, you're looking happy today or what's wrong or whatever it is. And so I became a bit of a sponge for what was in my environment. I think beyond asking lots of questions, there was this aspect of noticing a lot. And I think some of these questions were even born out of that. So someone might answer a question one way, but appear another way. Let me give you an example. Sure. I might, I might have asked a, a gentleman in his 40s about his history and when things might have started to change for him in terms of his sadness or something like that. And he would be talking about high school. And I'd ask him about childhood. I'd say, what about elementary school, those years? Anything bad happened back then? And he'd say, no, my childhood was fine. But I'd notice a flicker in his eyes, maybe a a glance down to the right. And I wouldn't let that go. I'd stop him for a minute and I'd say, now, when I asked you that, it looks like you paused and maybe became a little bit concerned. Was there something else that happened? Very often the people would say, no, nothing happened. I don't think so. I'd say, let's stop for a moment. Let me ask you the question again. And when you get your feeling, 
in response to my question, tell me what you think about. And sometimes right away they'd be able to tell me something that they hadn't thought about in years. Or if they couldn't answer that question, and this gets a little more subtle, they might not be able to remember at first. And I say, okay, all right. Can you, th th that feeling that you had, even though you have no memory with it, can you think of a situation that could happen to you now that would make you feel that way? And that would be easy for them. They'd say, oh, okay, and they'll come up with a situation. Give me an example. Something would unlock. It would all of a sudden transform. They'll be able to make that leap from an adult through the time machine, little mental time machine, back to childhood and tell me some story. And they'll blow themselves away. I'll be blown away. But it all starts with a flicker in the eye. So I, I think that's what you're asking about. Is that right? Yeah. For Sam, the process of doing a psychiatric interview became not just about remembering or what the patient remembered, but noticing. He was able to help his patients notice things that they couldn't on their own. The same way his therapist and his classmates helped him notice what was going on with his own brain's wonky memory. All of us have a brain that edits things out. And the story we tell ourselves, it has edits that aren't always obvious. It's a combination of memory and being in the moment here and now with us, along with what happened there and then with them, that lets us put together the story of why any of us is suffering now. One other thing that happened, and this doesn't have to do with being sensitive to the environment, but it's something that came out of this. I, I'm sure of it. I'm very good at noticing what's missing from a picture or a story. And not just that. If you make a recipe with lots of different herbs and spices and flavors, you can ask me what's missing, what it needs. Like that famous question, here, taste this. What does it need? And I'm really good at detecting what's missing. Um, so while I'm not necessarily good at knowing what you want to add or um, what else you could do, I definitely know what's missing. When we go and tell our story to someone else, there's this natural inclination when there's stuff that's hard to leave some of that back. And I was teaching in medical school, wait for the doorknob question. I'm sure you got that in family practice when you had the, the last minute of your 15 minutes in the office mm -hmm. and they have their hand on the doorknob and it's, oh, what about this thing and that sexual encounter I had last week? And you're like, oh, that was the thing you really want to talk about. So they, people leave out that important thing. Is that something that you find often in what you're doing that people leave out the actual thing? All the time all the time. There's the actual thing that they know about, and then there's the actual thing that they don't know about. The unknown. The funny thing about my memory is that it does work pretty well for a short period of time. So I can do these evaluations. I can do a two-hour evaluation and walk out and recite it almost word for word because I think my brain has had to compensate that way. But you ask me two and a half hours later, whatever the magic number is, and I couldn't tell you. But in the middle of these evaluations, someone will 
tell a story, and it'll span a certain number of years. And then they'll tell another story that spans an overlapping number of years. But the second story will miss a period of time. And I'll point that out. I'll say, you told me about 9, you told me about 10, you told me about 11, and then you told me about 13 and 14 and so on. What happened between 11 and 13 as far as that topic goes? And they would say they didn't remember. Nothing. It's a blank. And I'll say, that's funny because when you were telling me about depression, you told me about all those years. So you do have memory from that time. And I'll say, so what was going on for you trauma-wise when this was happening for you, depression-wise, from 11 to 13. And somehow accessing that memory for them, they'll then be able to access the memory from the other topic. But it's only because when they're telling that second story, there's like this glaring hole for me. And I'm sitting there, I almost want to catch them and say, well, wait, don't you see what you just did? I don't interact with my patients that way. I wait till they're done telling their story, and then I go back. Because the memory works well enough to do that. Sounds like a, quite a gift. A gift is a good thing, right? It depends what's in the box, but for people who come in needing to find out what the, the answer to the, the puzzle that is their life, sounds like a gift for them. It is because I think most doctors want to feel like they're doing good for their patients. Sam and I had been talking for at least an hour at this point, and I still hadn't told him why this was so relevant to me. The reason I became a psychiatrist in the first place is because my best friend had a traumatic brain injury. Interestingly enough, the thing that got me to be a psychiatrist, that got me past my own personal feelings of limitation and misgivings about going into the field of mental health was a friend of mine from childhood who had a traumatic brain injury Hmm. and then skied into a tree had a cardiac arrest first person who skied up was an emt second person who skied up behind him just by chance was an orthopedic surgeon Hmm. airlifted to a regional trauma center multiple strokes if you met him today he'd have no idea Hmm. he works in mental health actually and he turns out this is your kind of case he had bipolar sore. Hmm. Had manic episodes before. Why do you think he was skiing through the trees right. in the first place? But no mm-hmm. one ever asked him about it because they got hung up on this TVI, right? Yeah. And and I felt I went to medical school because like, how am I ever gonna understand enough without that medical training to deal with these traumatic brain injuries, to deal with these medical conditions? For, for you. You came to your understanding of your impairment and gift later. Right. How has that helped, other than your obvious gifts of doing it, how has that helped your patients, that that process of discovery for you, that kind of elongated process of discovery? Even though I wasn't seeing doctors throughout my life, I think I was a patient or a potential patient all those years. Um, I do have a a lot of sensitivity for my patients' experiences, for their stories, for the long story, the story that took 20 years to evolve or started 20 years ago and has been hiding all this time or has had the wrong name on it. A lot of understanding for their frustration. I am a long story psychiatrist. And... I think I'm quite 
sensitive to the idea that people may not know that there's something there that should have some light shed on it. Because I guess that's my story. Now, the interview could probably end there. But there was another bit that I thought was important. There's one more job a psychiatrist has. It's not just to notice. It's not just to make a diagnosis. It's not to formulate a treatment plan, although it is all those things. It's also to hold on to hope when the person you're trying to help is so hopeless because their brain edits out any sense of hope. And I felt that there was something more that Dr. Sharmat might have to say about that. So I asked. Do you see people at, essentially, their most hopeless? By definition, if they're seeing you, it hasn't worked. What gives you the energy to tolerate that? I have hope. And I think it's contagious to have my hope spread to the person in the room and have have them catch it and have them fill with it. Is that hope born of your own experience? I'm a little more optimistic than a lot of other people. My grandmother had Alzheimer's disease and... It didn't debilitate her physically at all, like it does for some people, but like most, she lost her memory. And one of the sort of family jokes about her from before she lost her memory was that she was a pessimist and a fatalist. And that was just part of her personality. If you were going to make fun of grandma, you were going to make fun of how much of a pessimist she was and how her favorite word was lousy. It really was. You ask her, how was your meal, Grandma? Lousy. How was the show you saw? Lousy. And she got Alzheimer's, and she started to lose her memory. And we were sitting at the table one night, and she had dessert. And someone asked her, Grandma, how's that dessert? She said, it's good. And we all looked at each other. She had never said that before. And it became a a pattern that we noticed from that point forward, that as she lost more memory she became less pessimistic and more optimistic. It made sense, because where does pessimism come from but from your own experience? Children are born optimists. Of course something's going to work. Of course you're going to jump off this thing and not break your ankles. Of course you're going to mix these things together and it's going to taste delicious. We learn to become pessimists through our experience, and when you lose your memory, you lose your pessimism. I might have lost some of my pessimism circuit too the magic of facebook connected me with someone i went to college with 25 years ago and we met for pizza and i asked him i said what do you remember about me i hadn't seen him in 25 years and he said you don't remember yourself and i actually said no i i don't remember what i was like i remember photos of me but that's it he said You were the guy that no one could get down. I said, really? He said, yeah. That was Sam. And I do think that the injury might have made me an optimist. 
and a contagious one at that. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast. I'm your host, Owen Scott Muir, MD. I produced the whole thing. This was recorded with the help of my friend Michael Raphael a million years ago. And the newsletter is thefrontierpsychiatrist.com. It's hosted on Substack. One plug for my listeners, I'm going to be hosting an event in January, right before the JPM healthcare event on Sunday called Rapid Acting Mental Health Treatment 2024. And you can get a ticket for that event on Eventbrite and see this podcast and, and newsletter live in a series of fireside chats that'll be much shorter than this interview. Please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and tell your friends because that's how the word gets out.